You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On January 31st, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie sat down with Washington Post reporter Robert Costa to talk about his new book, Let Me Finish. The interview, one of Christie's first since the release of his new memoir, covered his take on the GOP, his 15-year friendship with President Trump, and his thoughts on Team Trump associates. Let's listen. Thank you. Good evening. Thanks so much for coming here to The Washington Post. I'm Bob Costa, national political reporter, Governor Christie. It's great to have you here. Good to see you again. Your new book, Let Me Finish, Trump, The Kushners, Bannon, New Jersey, and the Power of In-Your-Face Politics. You talk a lot about President Trump in this book. I do. Let's start there. What explains his stance toward Russia? What did you see up close during the campaign or maybe in the White House that explains his view of Russia? I, I don't think... I think people get it wrong. I don't think it's particularly about Russia. I think this is a guy who likes people who have kind of unfettered power. Because you, you, you see it not only with Vladimir Putin, but you see it with Kim Jong-un, you see it with Erdogan, uh, over and over again, President Xi. Um, those seem to be the world leaders that he relates to the most and, and talks about the most. So I don't think it's anything particular to Russia. I think he just, you know, he finds Congress bothersome, um, you know. And, and like most people who, who win executive office, he just gives voice to it. Uh, most of us sat around and thought about, God, what would a week be like if I didn't have a legislature, if you were a governor or a Congress, if you were president? So I think people misread that. I don't think it's anything particular about Russia. I think it's about these very powerful leaders who don't, are not answerable to another, you know, branch of government. So the strongman view. But have yeah. you ever actually spoken to the president about Russia? No. About Putin? No. What do you make about the Treasury Secretary's decision to relieve sanctions, ease sanctions on Oleg Deripaska, one listen, of the Russian oligarchs? Listen, I don't know all the specifics of it, but what I would tell you is that I, I, I'm generally not comfortable with laying off of a country that is playing around in Eastern Europe, in Crimea and Ukraine. And I think that I'd much rather keep heat on everybody that can have influence on Putin in that regard, because I, I think that, you know, we fought an entire Cold War um, to try to make sure that that section of Europe was liberated and out of Russian Soviet control. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with it in general. I can't speak to the specifics of what um, Secretary Mnuchin discovered that led him to that decision. And so I'd have to defer to him on the specifics. But in generalities, it's not something that I would be particularly comfortable with. Speaker Pelosi said today, she was asked, does the Kremlin have something compromising on President Trump? She says, I think it's a question. I've been asking that question for two years. What is this? Something is wrong with this picture. I just think she's wrong, as I said before. I think my first answer applies to that question, too. Um, you know, I just don't think it's particular to that. You could say the same thing if you wanted to um, about North Korea or Turkey or, um, you know, or, or, uh, or China in some respects. Speaking of China and Russia, what do you make of the president's break with his own intelligence leaders on the assessment of threats abroad? Well, this goes back to the campaign. And I think even though the president has picked his own intelligence chiefs now, that all three of those people uh, that we saw in front of Congress this week 
um, are his own choices, he is still deeply, deeply suspicious of the people behind them. Why? Um, because I think he thinks they were trying to screw him during the campaign. Very simply, I mean, I think he looks at the evidence that has been uncovered since the election, and he believes that there were elements inside the intelligence community that didn't want him to be president and were playing dirty, in his view, um, to try to prevent him from becoming president. And since he believes that, I think his suspicion, his anger, his frustration is not towards Dan Coates and Chris Ray and Gina Haspel, but really towards the people behind but them. But he's still breaking with those people's conclusions. He is. But I think what he would tell you is that it's not so much those folks, although I'm disappointed that they would buy the information that's being given to them by those people behind them. And so I still think that the, the, the genesis, because it wouldn't make sense otherwise, okay, because initially people said, well, you know, you had Clapper and, and, and um, Comey and, and, and because they weren't his people and he didn't trust them. But once he got rid of them, and I think he thinks the problem is much larger. I think he believes the problem is with the folks deeply inside those intelligence communities who he believes have an ax to grind with him. And I think that's what motivates it. I mean, I, he hasn't told me that, but I know him for a long time, and that's what I read from his reaction. Because I, I know that I've had separate conversations with him where he said nothing but great things to say about Chris Ray, for instance, and the job that he's doing in general at the FBI. So I don't think it's personal. I think it's deeper than that. And he, he's named all these people to their positions, yep. which brings up the book. You talk so much about the transition in your book. One thing you don't detail is, so the president selected Tillerson for Secretary of State, Mattis for Secretary of Defense. Who was on your list for the transition? Well, I give some examples, um, Robert, a in the few. book. A, a few. Yeah, I'm not going to give you all of them. Uh, there, there might be a second book. Um, <laughs> why should I do that? But, I, but, but I'll give you an example, right, that, that I think is in the book. Um, the, the person at the top of our list, recommended list for HHS, was Alex Azar. He was never presented to the president in the transition. But when he was presented to the president, after Tom Price uh, crashed and burned, which was completely predictable, um, he, he, when he met Alex Azar, he called me and said, this, you know this Alex Azar guy? And I said, yes, sir, I do. He was, in fact, our recommendation in the transition for HHS secretary. I'm making him HHS secretary. He's great. He's brilliant. He's experienced. He's really good. So, you know, I think that, you know, part of the problem that I try to lay out in the book is he's accountable for all these personnel decisions. He's the president. He's accountable. He's not responsible for all of them. And I'm very much a proponent of the garbage in, garbage out, you know, theory of management. If you're getting garbage put in front of you and that's what you have to pick from, you're probably going to pick garbage. Because as an executive running a big operation, you're not going to go into the every detail of every recommendation that's made to you, because if you did, you would be paralyzed. And I think that because of the way they ran the transition, because they did it on the back of an envelope, you know, with three guys running around like chickens with their head cut off, um, you know, they gave the president a lot of very, very bad options. Um, and, you know, price is just one of them. And, you know, as I go in the book, I'll, you know, I'll talk about whichever ones you want. But, you know, there were a lot of people in there that if I were still head of the transition, 
in the post-election period, um, I would have thrown my body in front of to try to stop. One of the That's officials... a fairly substantial body, by the way. So. <laughs> I might have had a real shot at it. One of the officials you've praised recently is FBI Director Chris Wray. Yep. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina has asked Wray to come to Capitol Hill to testify about Roger Stone and that raid. Did the FBI handle that right? Well, I want to hear what Chris has to say. I, I will tell you, I was a little surprised by it. Um, when I first saw it, I was watching it with my wife in the morning, and she turned to me, she goes, isn't that over the top? And I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm sure he's got a gun. <laughs> like, because there's really only two reasons. You know, I was U.S. attorney for seven years and I'd authorized these raids or not. And there are really only two reasons to ever go that aggressive with the, with the, the armor and the automatic weapons and all the rest. It's either you have evidence that there's imminent destruction of evidence going on or that the person that you're going after has a firearm. If they have that firearm, they might harm an FBI agent or harm themselves. Now, I, I'm waiting to hear about what the basis of it was, but we now know he had no firearms. So I think it's appropriate for Lindsay to say, just tell us. And, and it's also very possible that Chris himself didn't authorize that. You know, Bob Mueller's the special counsel. He is like a U.S. attorney in, in a matter of speaking over, over a special area. When I was U.S. attorney, I certainly didn't have to clear those raids with the deputy attorney general. And the FBI special agent in charge of my office didn't clear them with the director. So it very well may not have been cleared through Chris, and that may be one of the things Chris says. So it'll be interesting to hear what Chris has say. I think it's perfectly appropriate to ask the questions, especially given that a news crew wound up being there. Now, I've CNN seen, was reporting. They were doing their own reporting. Well, that's what they say, because that's what they have to say. Because they can't say, oh, by the way, um, we have an FBI agent who leaks to us regularly. Isn't that a little bit of conspiracy theory right there? No, 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 it's not. Because I've seen it happen both ways. In my own jurisdiction, when I was in charge. You're saying CNN's lying? No, no, hold on. What I'm saying is, I, I could say that, but I want to be, be more delicate than that. And that's not easy for me. You're, you're starting to sound like Rudy Giuliani. No, no, no. I want to be more delicate than that. Um, you know, they have an, they have an obligation to protect their sources. They have an obligation not to out people who are trying to help them. That's part of the way the First Amendment works. So I wouldn't call that a lie if they're, if they're saying they were well, doing they've reporting. Said, they've said they, they were reporting. They're saying they were reporting. And by the way, having sources they were not that privately it. tell you things is part of reporting, right? You, I know you have private sources that's true. who tell you things, and that's part of reporting. But let me get through this. I've seen it happen both ways. There have been times when FBI agents, God love them, they can't help themselves, and they leak. Because they like being in that stuff. And they like doing those raids. That's one of the fun things they get to do. Right? So they like that. Other times, it's that good reporters are watching a grand jury, they see increased activity. Well, that's what CNN's explanation is. I understand. That's what the explanation always is, Robert. And sometimes it's true, and sometimes it's not. So it could be true that they saw increased activity and said, oh, the grand jury meets on Thursdays. So if they did indict that day when all that activity was going on, then they'll probably move on Friday. So we're going to sit on Stone's house. The other thing that often happens, too, is they're not the only ones sitting on Stone's house. The FBI is sitting on Stone's house, too, because you can't go in there at 6 o'clock in the morning and have him not be there, right? If it's just Mrs. Stone and the dogs, 
and you go in with 27 armed guys and, and there's no Roger because, oh, he happens to be in Topeka, you look like a smacked ass. Right? So there's going to be, so, so an FBI is not subtle in that regard when they're sitting on a house, right? So they're sitting and watching and oftentimes reporters will come by and they'll see, you know, um, a, uh, a sedan with two guys sitting in the front with wires in their ears and they go, hmm, that's either Costa with the wire in his ear or it's the FBI. So there's a bunch of different ways they can find this stuff out. I, and, and it's equally plausible, all three. Observing the grand jury and knowing when they were, were going to return an indictment or assuming when they were going to. They're sitting on Stone's house to see what Stone's up to and they see the FBI sitting on the house. So we're going to stay here until the FBI leaves. Or the third one, which is an FBI right. agent dropped a little phone call. Did the president ever talk about Roger Stone to you during the course of the campaign? No. Not once? Not once. He knew Roger wasn't my favorite guy. So he wouldn't be, he wouldn't, he just wouldn't talk. We, years past, we had talked about Roger, um, and he knew that Roger wasn't my favorite guy and not somebody who I thought should be involved at all. So he wouldn't like, you know, bring that up with me because he knew I wouldn't be receptive to it. One person you, you were around was uh, Rudy Giuliani during the campaign. Sure, I've been around Rudy Giuliani he, for years. Is he serving the president well as his lead lawyer? I believe he's doing exactly what the president wants him to do. What does that mean? So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, believe, I don't believe Rudy is playing the role of lead lawyer. I believe the lead lawyers are Jay Sekulow and Emmett Flood. I think Rudy is his spokesman for the Mueller investigation and the SDNY investigation. And he's doing that as a lawyer. And I think when you see Rudy talk, if you close your eyes, you can often hear the president. I think Rudy's going out there and saying the things that the president wants him to say because Rudy knows if he doesn't say them, the president will. And it's much better in a circumstance where an investiga investigations, plural, are going on to have a lawyer say something that could be inflammatory than to have the client say it. And so I think that Rudy is doing exactly what the president wants him to do, which is to go out there and cast doubt on this investigation. In large measure, I believe, I don't know this, but in large measure, I believe, because they think that there might be some impeachment proceedings at some point, and that that stops being a legal proceeding and becomes a political proceeding, and then this undermining of some of this stuff could be effective um, in doing this. We've seen this before, too, because we saw this in the Clinton years um, with the undermining of Ken Starr, and when that ultimately became an impeachment and a trial, a lot of that early work by the Clinton lawyers, um, Lanny Davis and others, um, wound up being effective in helping to beat back, so, so you know, he, so a, he's a, a removal. In your view, is yeah. he an effective spokesman? I think the president thinks he's an effective spokesman. That's all that matters. Like when you represent a client, the the lawyer doesn't care what you think. He cares what or she cares what their client thinks. And it may not. And I know this to be true. There may be times that he, he asks Rudy to go out there and do something, and Rudy's like, "Well, I don't know." if that was necessarily the best thing to do. And he's like, I want you to do it. All right, you're the client. It's your life, you know, I'll go do it. Um, and if he ever asks Rudy to do something, I'm confident that Rudy believes is, is unethical, then Rudy won't do that. Um, but, but, if, but if he asks him to do something that Rudy thinks isn't in his best interest, but the client insists on it being done, I think Rudy rightfully concludes that if he doesn't do it, he'll get fired and he'll bring someone else in to do it. So he does it.
Speaking of people who are friendly with the president, Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker recently said the Mueller investigation could be wrapping up pretty soon. What do you think Whitaker's up to with that comment? I really don't know. Um, I worked with Matt when I was a U.S. attorney in the Bush administration. He was as well. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you'd want to say. Um, <laughs> you know, like, you don't want to necessarily tip your hand on that stuff, typically. So I really, I, I, I'd love to give you an explanation, Robert. I don't have one. I don't know why he would say that. What's the chatter in the federal law enforcement community about that comment? I haven't heard any chatter about that comment in, in the federal law enforcement community. But like I said, I can't really explain it. How do you stand by when the president goes after law enforcement agencies and erodes their credibility institutionally almost constantly? Well, I don't stand by. When he does stuff like that, I talk to him about it. And I try what to... What do you tell him? Well, when I think he's wrong, I tell him he's wrong. But on the law enforcement side? going after the FBI. Well, that's what I'm telling you. When he does that, I call him and I say, don't do that. It's wrong. <laughs> and he'll say, why do you think it's wrong? And then we'll get into a whole conversation about why I believe what he's doing is wrong. And listen, you need to understand the context of the relationship. We've been friends for 17 years. I don't, I don't need to hesitate about what I want to say or not say to the president because We've been friends for 17 years, and I'm confident no matter what happens, we'll be friends for 17 more. And so if I think there's something wrong, and I don't call him every time I think there's something wrong, but if I think it's serious, like this law enforcement stuff that you reference and that he's done a number of times, I call him and say, hey, knock it off. This isn't good. It's not good for you. It's not good for the country. Um, and, and, you know, there are times when he agrees and other times when he disagrees about it. But, you know... I, I said to him something right at the very beginning of all this stuff, at the beginning of his presidency. I said, listen, I've run these investigations. I did it for seven years in one of the biggest districts in the country at the highest level. And this is absolutely true. There is no way you can make this investigation shorter. But there are an infinite number of ways you can make it longer. And the more you talk and the more you tweet, you give every investigator and AUSA another avenue to chase down, and you make it longer and longer and longer. Stop. You see how successful I've been <laughs> at getting him to take that advice. But I, every chance I have to do it, I give him the advice. But the flip side of it is, he is the President of the United States, he gets to take in as much advice as he wants, and then he gets to accept the advice he wants to accept and reject the advice he wants to reject. And it doesn't stop me from doing it. And I don't feel like I need to get, unless like, except for something like Charlottesville, where I felt it was very important for me to say publicly that I disagreed with those remarks and those statements. But every, and I did, but every statement that he, that he may make someday that I disagree with, I'm not going to comment on. Um, first of all, because I'm not a public official anymore, and so I don't feel the need to. I'm a private citizen again. And, and secondly, it shouldn't be any shock that I disagree with him on stuff. I mean, let's, I ran against him. Right. I Is mean, he still listening it's not to you like now? it's not like it was my. You know, it, it, it be clear, he wasn't my first choice for president. That I was, was clear. <laughs> right. So like that was clear. Right. So does he listen? Sure, he listens to me. And there's plenty of times. Does he like this book tour? He tweeted, in a way, seemed to be alluding to you. Yeah, saying, but I. But I. So he said, I, "I'm president." The other people I, out there with their books. Listen, I, I saw that, and I got asked about it this morning by Hallie and. And I spoke to the president uh, over the weekend, and then I, and I, I spoke to I spoke to the White House today, and that that uh, tweet was not aimed at me.
They, who told you that at the White I'm House? I'm not going to tell you who told me, Robert. <laughs> you t the next time you write a story, it's on the front page. I'll call you and say, who told you that? And you'll say, for, for the same reason I'm not telling you, you won't tell me. Because then they won't tell me anymore. You think the president's inclined to uh, pardon Roger Stone? No. Absolutely not. Because he knows it's political suicide. It would be political suicide. Absolutely. Absolutely, because everybody would conclude that the only reason he pardoned them was to shut him up. And, and the president's not stupid. And so he's not going to do that. He understands, you know, one of the strongest instincts Donald Trump has is self-preservation. And he's pretty good at it. He knows how to get not only at the line, but like one toe over the line, but not go a whole foot over the line. He understands how to do that. He, I don't think, I would be surprised if you see any pardons out of this, because I think he knows that at least at the moment, that's politically not viable. You criticize Steve Bannon a lot in this book, and yes, I do. Bannon had a different view on Charlottesville than yes. you just articulated here about yep. Charlottesville. But have you ever grappled with the issue of race? You endorse the president, support the president, despite his comments on birtherism, for example. Right. Although, at the time. I spoke out and said that I thought it was absolutely ridiculous, that I absolutely believed that President Obama was born in the United States, and that I thought that the president's arguments was stupid. Now, he wasn't the president then, he was just Donald, but... But how can you support someone who has those views? Because, because if I wait to support someone who agrees with everything I agree with, I'll never support anybody but myself. <laughs> right? So, and when, and as I, as I did with Charlottesville, and as I did with birtherism, which you just brought up, when I feel like somebody who I like and support says something that I can't support, then I say, oh, by the way, I like him, but this I don't agree with. That I don't like. Now, if that list gets like, you know, so long that you just say, well, all right, I, I can't be here anymore, well, then that's a decision you have to make. But that's not the situation I'm in. Um, and, and if it ever gets to be that way, then I won't support him anymore. But it's not that way for me. Do you see the birther position that was held by the president still held, perhaps, as a racist position? No. I, I not a it, racist position? No, I see it as a silly position. <laughs> I just think it's like one of those silly conspiracy theories that some people buy, and it gets a life of its own because we have, you know, an Internet now that allows things to race around the world in, you know, milliseconds, and, you know, everybody's sitting in their, you know, basement on the network of hate, Twitter, and, you know, can killing each other, right? I mean... That's the world we live in now. I mean, I don't even, I don't even look at the comments on Twitter anymore. You can't. I mean, it's like all it is is filled with hate, and and so I think that's one of those things. I think it's not race. People of color may not see it as silly. I understand, I'm, and they have every right to disagree with me, Robert. You asked me my opinion. My opinion is it's silly stupid conspiracy theory that was proven definitively wrong by the president showing his long-form birth certificate. End of discussion. If other people want to run around and keep talking about it, I, I don't have to pay attention to it. i got more important things to do. And the president doesn't talk about it anymore, to be fair to the president. He doesn't talk about it anymore. But, but you know, if other people have a different feeling about it and are more deeply offended by it for different reasons, that's absolutely their right and their right to express it. 
But if you think about the birther issue, I don't, I don't want to I don't want to spend seriously. But no, I just I think a know, lot of people. But, but wait a second, a Robert. This is what you drives. You call it silly. This no, is what people. This is what no. drives regular people nuts. No, it's not. Okay, no. because we're into the. Th we we no, have so many important stuff to discuss. History's going to look back and wonder why did so many Republicans support someone who held those birther views? And I'm you know what? You know why? You know why? You know why so many Republicans supported him? Because they didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president. We we had we had the two. This is this is demonstrably factually true. We had the two most unpopular candidates for president of the major parties in in the 20th or 21st century, and so this election became a choice for lots of people between which one didn't they want, and I'll vote for the other one. Now that wasn't everybody, but that was some. So. For a lot of folks who voted for Donald Trump, they voted for Donald Trump because they loved him and they agreed with him. For some folks who voted for Donald Trump, they voted for Donald Trump because they said, not in my life will I ever vote for Hillary Clinton. And I told the president quite candidly during the campaign, I said, this is not your race to win, this is your race to lose. And I believe that right from the time he secured, or, or you know, secured for all argument, not before the, before the convention, I thought it was his to lose. Because I thought she was the single most, you know, unappealing um, presidential nominee of my lifetime. And I think it turned out to be true. And so there's lots of people you now that disagree with me who voted for Hillary Clinton or who say, no, 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 Donald Trump was the single most unappealing nominee that the party's ever had, right? Right? So there you go. There's some people who feel that way. And, 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 and I bet you a lot of those people didn't love Hillary Clinton. Some of them did. But a lot of them didn't. A lot of them said... I don't love her, but I like her more than him. So, you know, I think that, you know, this idea that somehow we're going to have some historians looking back 100 years from now and saying, a birtherism, how could anyone have voted for someone you who can't was for birtherism? It, you can't ignore it. It's part wait, of the story. Wait a second. We it's haven't ignored it. The, you got three questions into it. How right. many different ways you want me to say it? I mean, let's turn we haven't shutdown. ignored it. All right. I know, we're, you know we shouldn't ignore it. So let's turn to... And we didn't. We did not. <laughs> it's... Believe it there. I know. Shut, I know, Robert. Shut down politics. Yeah. Can Jared Kushner cut a big deal on immigration or not? On <laughs> um, listen, legislative, executive branch relations and politics are some of the most complicated politics you can engage in. Because the executive always thinks, hell, I'm one person who got elected the executive. Listen to me. The 535 people down the street say, and, and, and the, my legislature did this with me all the time, if I had a dime for every time they said, we are a co-equal branch of government, sir, I'd be rich, and I'm not. They weren't giving me the dimes for that. But the fact is that because of that tension, that inherent tension that was put together by our founders, this is very complicated stuff. Big egos on both sides, big differences on both sides. I had eight years of a Democratic legislature. You need to have a lot of experience to be able to broker that. And I just don't believe right now, and the president has the best team on the field to get an agreement. And that the best, that the people who should be wearing the captain's stripes aren't necessarily wearing the captain's stripes. And 
so I think that's one of the problems. So why doesn't why does the president keep listening to Jared Kushner and giving him these projects like per, trying to cut an immigration deal? If he's not up to it, in you, your view. You, you are aware that he's married to his daughter. Is there right? anything beyond that? I've always wondered with Kushner. Is there anything beyond him being Ivanka's, Ivanka Trump's husband? Is there anything about his listen, skill, he's his not, relationship with the president? Listen, he's 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 not without skills. Okay, he's he is a bright guy. All right, but but he is a mid-thirties New York real estate executive. Now that's a certain skill set. And it's a skill set that he's utilized fairly well so far in his life. He is a graduate of law school. So he has a bit of a background, although he never really practiced law. He has a bit of a background as a trained lawyer as well. Those are all skills. But they are not the skills that lead you to conclude that you can, con that you can negotiate a deal on something that the Clinton administration couldn't do that the Bush 43 administration couldn't do, and that the Obama administration couldn't do. Those three administrations have been trying to cut a comprehensive immigration compromise now for 25 years, and they haven't gotten it done. That tells me this is an emotional, complicated, difficult issue. Now, in the politics of the next two weeks, I think there's real risk on both sides. In the initial shutdown, there wasn't. In the initial shutdown, the president sat in a room and said, I'll shut down the government. I'll take responsibility for it. I'm proud to do it. And Schubert sat there and went, this is the luckiest day of my life. <laughs> right? And so when the government shut down, even though the Democrats bear culpability for that as well, for letting it happen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they went, no, he said it. Here, there's the tape. Right. He said it. Now he compromised to reopen the government. Some would use a different C word, capitulate. But whatever, whatever C word you want to use, he did one of them. Now the field's been reset. Now, in my interaction with legislatures in my eight years as governor in New Jersey, I, I came to understand one very simple thing about this. Everyone has to win. If everyone doesn't win, they don't do a deal. And if you do do a deal where you get it by scorched earth, it will be the last deal you get because they will remember and they will lay in the weeds waiting for you. And then when you want the next one, they will kill you. That's the way it works. So I want the Democrats to remember this too. Everyone needs to win. And there has got to be a way to give Democrats a win on some issues that are very important and dear to them in the immigration arena and give the president what he's interested in, even if they don't give him all of it, because no one's going to get all of it. And if they don't, then they are pushing him to take executive action because they're saying we I saw Speaker Pelosi today say there will never be any money for a wall. OK, well, then he's going to take executive action. I can guarantee you that because there's no alternatives left to him. He can't close the government uh -huh. again. That's untenable. And it's untenable for the Democrats, too. So if they don't come to the table and be willing to have a situation where everybody wins, then they are pushing him to take executive action. Then it'll wind up in the courts, and away we go. Um, and I don't think anybody should want that, because political disputes, which is what this is, don't belong in front of judges. Legal disputes belong in front of judges. I remember going to report on you at the Jersey Shore in 2011. 
it was right ahead of the 2012 presidential race. You decided not to run in 2012. Uh, one of the people who did run that cycle, Herman Cain, he's now being considered for the Federal Reserve Board. Mm -hmm. Bloomberg first reported. I spoke just spoke to Cain on the phone. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I don't know Herman Cain all that well. He was Godfather Pizza, right? Um, uh, and, and I don't know what his qualifications are to be on the Federal Reserve. So I'd have to look at Herman's resume and learn more about him to see if that's something that he's qualified um, to do, in my opinion, or not. So it wouldn't be fair of me to give an opinion, Robert, because I really, all I know about, about Herman Cain is what I saw of him in the 2012 presidential race, and I don't really knew anything about him before that either. So I think it'd be unfair of me to make a judgment on a guy because I could make the wrong judgment and say something that impugns his integrity. And if I do that, you know, fair it's enough. not a good thing to do. One more thing on Kushner. When you were discussing possibly coming into the White House as chief of staff, would you have taken the job if you had the ability to reassign Jared Kushner somewhere else in the administration? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, one of the things I said to the president and have said to the president over time is that I think it's impossible for any member of his family to report to anybody but him. I just think it's impossible. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if, if you make a decision as a chief of staff that um, is against the wishes or the opinion of a member of his family, you know you're not the court of last resort. See, with every other staff member and your chief of staff, that's why they call you chief of staff, you are the court of last resort. No staff member is going to go around the chief of staff directly to the president because they know that when the chief of staff finds that out, there will be like three of those cardboard boxes in their office waiting for them when they get back from that intervention and they'll be packing their stuff and leaving. Unless they're family. That's my point is that there is a different court of last resort. So I believe that Jared Navanka, the president has every right to have Jared Navanka in a job in the White House if he wants it. But my advice has always been, then have them report directly to you and let us stop the illusion of the fact that they're normal staffers. Let us stop the illusion of the fact that they would actually report to a chief of staff and take orders from a chief of staff if they disagreed with those orders. It doesn't make sense. It's not good for the president and it's not good for whoever the chief of staff is. We have a few minutes left. 2020, could Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, who I believe is a friend of yours, Very could, could he be a viable challenger in a 2020 Republican primary? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, what I would tell you this, though, I, I look at polling right now, as of you know, this past week, among Republican primary voters, and the president has an 81% job approval among Republican primary voters. So that only leaves 19% of the people who are either disapproving or undecided. That's not a really big, broad platform to run on to challenge an incumbent president who is not only personally wealthy, but will have whatever um, donor class money that he would want at his disposal if he were challenged in a primary. So if anybody, not just Larry, I think Larry is extraordinarily talented. He's done an amazing job in Maryland. His reelection, he's only the second Republican in the history of Maryland to be reelected governor. I mean, he's an extraordinary talent. But if he asked me my opinion today, right. I'd say to him, don't do it. 
because you, there's, I don't see a pathway to winning. Suppose the president's popularity among Republicans fell, let's say, to 60 percent. Well, then lots of people will be thinking about it then, Robert. Including you? Would oh, I, no, listen, no, I'm not. I'm you, not you rule out a 2020 primary challenge? I, I'm not interested in running for president at the moment. No, I am not. At the moment? Well, at the moment, meaning 2020. <laughs> Meaning 2020. So you rule out a 2020 presidential yes. bid, 100. Yeah, yeah. Would yeah, you be open to supporting Hogan if you ever got in? Listen, you're asking me to well, really no, look into the future. No, not I, really. So you're, you're, now, you're now asking me to pit no. two. Hold on. You're asking me. Let me answer it, Robert. Let me you're finish. Asking, let me finish. <laughs> um, you're asking me now. With two people who I really consider both to be dear right, friends. That's why I know it's not political question. friends. So, you know what? I'm not deciding the question right now. In the end of the day, I don't believe Larry's going to run. I know Larry well. I don't believe Larry's going to run um, just because of the circumstances that, that are here right now. And now, then you say, well, speculate if Trump's popularity is at well, 60 or at 50. You're or saying 40. I'm not deciding on whether I could support Hogan today. No, no. What I'm saying is that there are no circumstances at the moment where I believe Hogan could win. And as a result, I would tell Hogan, don't run. And that's what I would tell him. Beyond that, in, in the world of the lovely hypotheticals you're trying to draw me into so you can make a headline, I ain't buying. There's no game. Not my first rodeo. Another person in your world, your past, Senator, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, he wrote a tough op-ed on President Trump yep. in the Washington Post. What's he up to with that? Is he thinking 2020? I mean, he can if he wants to. I don't. I don't. I. I don't think that would end well for him. Why not? Because I. Because listen. I. I think we all watched Mitt run for president. I think he's a really good, decent, smart person, but I think he proved not to be the most appealing presidential candidate. And I don't think that you, if you're in that mode and you've done it before, he lost a primary in '08. He lost a general in 12. Do you really want to come back and challenge an incumbent president of your own party? I just, I just think it would not be smart, and I don't think as a result it would end well for him. Um, and and I, and because I like him, I hope he doesn't do it, because I don't, yep. I don't think that would end well. We got three minutes left. A lightning round here. And 25 seconds. Howard, Sh Howard Schultz. Run, Howard, run. <laughs> Let's go, baby. Get me a T-shirt. Let's get Howard Schultz to the race. He, he's going to be our Ross Perot, man. Better be the Republicans. Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke. Who cares? I mean, seriously, Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke is delusional. He's thinking I raised thirty-seven and a half million dollars in the third quarter. Do you know why? Not because of Beto O'Rourke. He was running against Ted Cruz. Cory Booker. Right? Ted Cruz. Cory Booker. Every Democrat in America wants to beat Ted Cruz, right? And they're like, someone's running? I'll send him a check. No problem. <laughs> Beto thinks all that money's coming in when he runs for president. Fat chance. Not happening. Cory Booker. Cory Booker. Talented, smart, articulate. Hope that he stays in this campaign to the roots that I saw him establish in New Jersey. He was someone who was pro-voucher. He was pro-charter school. He was somebody who was tough on crime in the city of Newark. If he stays in that lane and is the articulate, inspirational guy that he is, then I think he's got a legitimate chance to be a serious potential problem for the president in the general election. If he goes way wacky left, then he's just going to be another one of those people and he won't be able to distinguish himself. I like him. Uh, he's a friend. 
We've been friends for 15 years. He's a good person, and I like Cory Booker. AOC, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Socialism. That's it. She's a socialist. And I, and, I, and I just say this. Go to Venezuela. I know it's a big phrase now, but it's what's happening. We do not need to move this country towards full government control of our entire lives. It didn't work in the Soviet Union. It didn't work in China. It's not working in Venezuela. It didn't work in Nicaragua. And it sure as hell shouldn't even be tried here. And I understand she's the flavor of the month. That's fine. Congratulations to her. She won a big race against a congressman who went to sleep, forgot to go back to his district, forgot to campaign, figured he was running for speaker, and all of a sudden lost his primary. So now she's become a star. That's the way politics works in our country. Congratulations to her. I admire her tenacity, but I can't agree with a thing she says from a policy perspective. Final one. We have a minute. Michael Bloomberg. I don't think he'll run. Um, because Why I don't, not? because I don't see how he can win a primary. Listen, I like Mayor Bloomberg. I worked with him. I was governor while he was mayor for a period of time in New York. He he's smart and and he's decisive, um, and I think he's a good guy. Um, and Mike and I get along really well. But in the, where the Democratic Party is positioned right now, you know, they're going to kill him on stop and frisk. He did stop and frisk in New York with New York police, a policy I agree with. But in this Democratic Party, he's going to go to Iowa, to the Iowa Democrats, and defend stop and frisk. He, he'll, he'll get slaughtered. And, and I don't think rightfully, it, but I think it's going to happen. Vice President Biden may run? Pardon? Is it maybe the reason he, Bloomberg doesn't run is Biden may run? No. I think Bloomberg would, would be happy to take on Biden. Um, I think Bloomberg's got the, you know, I think Bloomberg has got the, the um, ambition um, and the confidence to do it. I don't think it's that. I think it's Mike's going to look at his issue profile from when he was mayor of New York, which is really moderate, really down the center, moderate, um, you know, Republican at one time, independent another time, Democrat another time. Um, but, and I think he'll just see that that's not where the energy is right now in the Democratic Party. The energy in the Democratic Party is in the left wing of the party, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party is where the energy is. And Mike does not have the long history with the party that Joe Biden has. What will help Joe Biden, in my view, since he's not a part of that Sanders wing, is he's been around for 45 years. He's got friendships and chits to collect all over the country, people who respect him for the work he did with President Obama. And, and who think that he's a good, decent guy. And I think that will help. They're more willing to look at him and say, well, he's been with us all along, Biden. Bloomberg, he was, used to be a Republican, right? Yep. And then he used to be an independent. So I don't think, I think Biden gets the benefit of the doubt from Democratic voters. He's still going to have to make the sale. I don't think Bloomberg gets the benefit of the doubt. I know we got to go. Well, last thing, you just mentioned President Obama. Are you still close with him? Still close. <laughs> Well, I remember, the, I remember the famous... What? The well, famous what? Gesture. Ah. Ah. Not a hug, right, Robert? I said gesture. Right? Listen, you know, this is the funniest thing in the world. I ran around from 2010, when I was elected, through almost the entire 2012 campaign, beating President Obama senseless. I used to say about him, he is a man in a dark room, struggling around, getting the wall, trying to find the light switch of leadership, and he still can't find it. 
That's not complimentary. <laughs> but when Hurricane Sandy hits and the President of the United States calls you and says, I want to come and survey the damage, you know what you do if you're the governor of New Jersey? You stand up and salute and you say, yes, sir, Mr. President, where do you want me to meet you? And when he comes into your state, you don't put a Romney sweatshirt on, okay? You don't shake pom-poms for Mitt Romney. You show him the damage when your state lost 365,000 homes in 24 hours. And you say to him, Mr. President, I need your help. And when he gives you the help, which he did in those first two days already, you go on TV and you say, thank you, Mr. President, because you're helping save the lives and property of my people. Now, if that pisses off Republicans, too bad. We have one president at a time. Now, I'll give you, since you, since you got me on this toot now, I'll give, you, I'll give you one anecdote about this. On the day that Barack Obama came in, the Wednesday, Hurricane Sandy happened eight days before the election, the Monday before the next Tuesday. That Wednesday, six days before the election, Barack Obama comes to New Jersey. We do a couple of tours of a couple of places. We meet some victims. Then we hold a press availability, and I get asked, how has the president done so far in dealing with this? And I say, the president has done an outstanding job. Everything I've asked him for, he's given me, and I thank him. We then leave that press conference, and we get on Marine One together to go to another place to look. And in Marine One, the seats are really close to each other. So, like, we're sitting across from each other, and we're practically knee to knee to each other. And he gets on the plane, and he says to me, um, Governor, listen, the, the things you said at that press conference, I, I, I know you didn't have to say that. And I want to tell you, I know how sensitive the time is right now, and um, I really appreciate your willingness to go out there and tell the truth. And I said, of course, Mr. President, I wouldn't have done anything but that. It's then the moment comes when there's that awkward silence. <laughs> like, where do you really go from there, right? And I feel like I've got an obligation, if he really wants me to be honest, to be honest. So there's a pause for a while. We're both kind of like pretending to look out the window. We, have, we haven't even taken off yet, you know. And, and, we're like, and I finally look at him and I go, Mr. President, just to be clear, you know I'm not voting for you, right? <laughs> and he got this big smile on his face. He looked at me and goes, Chris, believe me, I wasn't worried about that for a minute. <laughs> the problem with American politics today is that when I ran for president in the Republican primary, I heard more about that moment than I heard about any position I took in the presidential campaign. And that's why we have a problem. Because I wouldn't change one thing that I did that day if you gave me all the information I have today and, and transponded me back into that moment because I took an oath to represent the people of my state and to serve them. And he took an oath to represent the people of our country and to serve them. And if at that moment, when 365,000 people lost their homes in my state, you can't do it, then you don't belong in the job. And so I understand, I, I'm still, I was never friends with him. I'm still not friends with him. It's not like he picks up the phone and goes, hey, Chris, it's Barry, what's up, you know? <laughs> That never happened. And, and you know, we, we, when we see each other, which is rare, but when we do, it's cordial, it's friendly, and we joke all the time about the hug when we see each other because we both know we didn't hug each other. And I remember he said to me one time, geez, he goes, 
who would have thought that would have hurt you more than it hurt me? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. who would have thought? So that's the way it goes. If you, because the people in this room are like the choir. If you're here in an afternoon on Thursday, you give a damn about this stuff and you care about the country and you care about our politics. We've got to stop this stuff. We've got to stop demonizing each other for being civil to each other, which in the end was exactly what I was to the President of the United States. And I make no apologies for it, and I never will. Governor Christie, thank you very much. Thanks, Appreciate Robert. it. Thank you. And you can find video of this presentation at WashingtonPostLive.com. Thanks so much for coming out tonight. We here at The Washington Post really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.